Friday, March 3, 1944. My dearest Kitty, when I looked into the candle tonight, I felt calm and happy again. It seems Grandma is in that candle, and it's Grandma who watches over and protects me and makes me feel happy again. But there's someone else who governs all my moods, and that's Peter. I went to get the potatoes today, and while I was standing on the stairway with my pan full, he asked, what did you do during the lunch break? I sat down on the stairs and we began to talk. The potatoes didn't make it to the kitchen until 5.15. Peter didn't say anything more about his parents. We just talked about books and about the past. Oh, he gazes at me with such warmth in his eyes. I don't think it will take much for me to fall in love with him. He brought the subject up this evening. I went to his room after peeling potatoes and remarked on how hot it was. You can tell the temperature by a look at Margaret and me, because we turn white when it's cold and red when it's hot, I said. In love? he asked. Why should I be in love? It was a pretty silly answer. Why not? he said, and then it was time for dinner. What did he need? Today I finally managed to ask him whether my chatter bothered him. All he said was, oh, it's fine with me. I can't tell how much of his reply was due to shyness. Kitty, I sound like someone who's in love and can talk about nothing but her dearest darling, and Peter is a darling. Will I ever be able to tell him that? Only if he thinks the same of me. But I am the kind of person you have to treat with kid gloves. I know that too well. I know that all too well. And he likes to be left alone, so I don't know how much he likes me. In any case, we're getting to know each other a little better. I wish we dared to say more. But who knows, maybe that time will come sooner than I think. Once or twice a day he gives me a knowing glance. I wink back, and we're both happy. It seems crazy to talk about his being happy, and yet I have the overwhelming feeling he thinks the same way I do. Yours and Frank. Saturday, March 4, 1944. Dearest Kitty, This is the first Saturday in months that hasn't been tiresome, dreary, and boring. The reason is Peter. This morning, as I was on my way to the attic to hang up my apron, father asked whether I wanted to stay and practice my French, and I said yes. We spoke French together for a while, and I explained something to Peter, and then we worked on that English. Father read aloud from Dickens, and I was in seventh heaven, since I was sitting on father's chair close to Peter. I went downstairs at quarter to eleven, when I went back up at eleven-thirty. Peter was already waiting for me on the stairs. He talked until quarter to one. Whenever I leave the room, for example after a meal, and Peter has a chance and no one else can hear, he says, Bye Anne, see you later. Oh, I'm so happy. I wonder if he's going to fall in love with me after all. In any case, he's a nice boy, and you have no idea how good it is to talk to him. Mrs. Van D thinks it's alright for me to talk to Peter, but today she asked me, teasing me, Can I trust you two up there? Of course, I protested. I take that as an insult. Morning, noon, and night, I look forward to seeing Peter. Yours and Frank. P.S. Before I forget, last night everything was blanketed in snow. Now it's thawed and there's almost nothing left. Monday, March 6, 1944. Dearest Kitty, Ever since Peter told me about his parents, I've felt a certain sense of responsibility toward him. Don't you think that's strange? It's as though their quarrels were just as much my business as his, and yet I don't dare bring it up anymore because I'm afraid it makes him uncomfortable. I won't want to intrude, not for all the money in the world. I can tell by Peter's face that he ponders things just as deeply as I do. Last night I was annoyed when Mrs. Fendi scoffed, to think her. Peter flushed and looked embarrassed, and I nearly blew my top. 
Why don't these people keep their mouths shut? You can't imagine what it's like to have to stand on the sidelines and see how lonely he is without being able to do anything. I can imagine, as if I were in his place, how despondent he must sometimes feel at the quarrels. And about love, poor Peter, he needs to be loved so much. It sounded so cold when he said he didn't need any friends. Oh, he's so wrong. I don't think he means it. He clings to his masculinity, his solitude, and his feigned indifference so he can maintain his role, so he'll never ever have to show his feelings. Poor Peter, how long can he keep it up? Won't he explode from this superhuman effort? Oh, Peter, if only I can help you, if only you would let me. Together, we could banish our loneliness, yours and mine. I've been doing a great deal of thinking, but not saying much. I'm happy when I see him, and happier still if the sun shines when we're together. I washed my hair yesterday, and because I knew he was next door, I was very rambunctious. I couldn't help it. The more quiet and serious I am on the inside, the noisy I get on the outside. Who will be the first to discover the chink in my arm? It's just as well that the Fandans don't have a daughter. My conquest could never be so challenging, so beautiful and so nice with someone of the same sex. Yours and Frank. P.S. You know I'm always honest with you, so I think I should tell you that I live from one encounter to the next. I keep hoping to discover that he's dying to see me, and I'm enraptured when I notice his bashful attempts. I think he'd like to be able to express himself as easily as I do. Little does he know it's his awkwardness that I find so touching. Tuesday, March 7, 1944. Dearest Kitty, when I think back to my life in 1942, it all seems so unreal. The end friend who enjoyed that heavenly existence was completely different from the one who has grown wise within these walls. Yes, it was heavenly. Five admirers on every street corner, 20 or so friends, the favorite of most of my teachers, spoiled rotten by father and mother, bags full of candy and a big allowance. What more could anyone ask for? You're probably wondering how I could have charmed all those people. Peter says it's because I'm attractive, but that isn't it entirely. The teachers were amused and entertained by my clever answers, my witty remarks, my smiling face and my critical mind. That's all I was, a terrible flirt, coquettish and amusing. I had a few plus points, which kept me in everybody's good graces. I was hardworking, honest and generous. I would never have refused anyone who wanted to peer at my answers. I was magnanimous with my candy and I wasn't stuck up. Would all that admiration eventually have made me overconfident? It's a good thing that, at the height of my glory, I was suddenly plunged into reality. It took me more than a year to get used to doing without admiration. How did they see me at school? As the class comedian, the eternal ringleader, never in a bad mood, never a crybaby. Was it any wonder that everyone wanted to bicycle to school with me or do me little favours? I look back at that Anne Frank as a pleasant, amusing, but superficial girl who has nothing to do with me. What did Peter say about me? Whenever I saw you, you were surrounded by a flock of girls and at least two boys. You were always laughing and you were always the centre of attention. He was right. What's remained of that Anne Frank? Oh, I haven't forgotten how to laugh or toss off a remark. I'm just as good, if not better, at raking people over the coals and I can still flirt and be amusing, if I want to be. But there's the catch. I'd like to live that seemingly carefree and happy life for an evening, a few days a week. At the end of that week, I'd be exhausted and would be grateful to the first person to talk to me about something meaningful. I want friends, not admirers. 
people who respect me for my character and my deeds, not my flattering smile. The circle round me would be much smaller, but what does that matter as long as they're sincere? In spite of everything, I wasn't altogether happy in 1942. I often felt I'd been deserted, but because I was on the go all day long, I didn't think about it. I enjoyed myself as much as I could, trying consciously or unconsciously to fill the void with jokes. Looking back, I realized that this period of my life has irrevocably come to a close. My happy-go-lucky, carefree school days are gone forever. I don't even miss them. I've outgrown them. I can no longer just kid around since my serious side is always there. I see my life up to New Year's 1944 as if I were looking through a powerful magnifying glass. When I was at home, my life was filled with sunshine. Then, in the middle of 1942, everything changed overnight. Quarrels, the accusations, I couldn't take it all in. I was caught off guard. And the only way I knew to keep my bearings was to talk back. The first half of 1943 brought crying spells, loneliness, and a gradual realization of my faults and shortcomings, which were numerous and seemed even more so. I filled the day with chatter, tried to draw Pim closer to me and failed. This left me on my own to face the difficult task of improving myself so I won't have to hear the reproaches because they made me so despondent. The second half of the year was slightly better. I became a teenager and was treated more like a grown-up. I began to think about things and to write stories, finally coming to the conclusion that the others no longer had anything to do with me. They had no right to swing me back and forth like a pendulum on a clock. I wanted to change myself in my own way. I realized I could manage without my mother, completely and totally, and that hurt. But what affected me even more was the realization that I was never going to be able to confide in father. I didn't trust anyone but myself. After New Year's, the second big change occurred, my dream, through which I discovered my longing for a boy. Not for a girlfriend, but for a boyfriend. I also discovered an inner happiness underneath my superficial and cheerful exterior. From time to time, I was quiet. Now I live only for Peter, since what happens to me in the future depends largely on him. I lie in bed at night. After ending my prayers with the words, Thank you, God, for all that is good and dear and beautiful. And I'm filled with joy. I think of going into hiding, my health and my whole being as das cute, Peter's love. The future, happiness and love as das lieb, the world, nature and the tremendous beauty of everything, all that splendor as das schön. At such moments, I don't think about all the misery, but about the beauty that still remains. This is where mother and I differ greatly. Her advice in the face of melancholy is, think about all the suffering in the world and be thankful you're not part of it. My advice is, go outside, to the country, enjoy the sun and all nature has to offer. Go outside and try to recapture the happiness within yourself. Think of all the beauty in yourself and in everything around you and be happy. I don't think mother's advice can be right, because what are you supposed to do if you become part of the suffering? You'd be completely lost. On the contrary, Beauty remains, even in misfortune. If you just look for it, you discover more and more happiness and regain your balance. A person who is happy will make others happy. A person who has courage and faith will never die in misery. Yours and Frank. Wednesday, March 8, 1944. Margaret and I have been writing each other notes, just for fun, of course. And it's strange, but I can only remember the day after what has happened the night before. For example, I suddenly remembered that Mr. Dusso was snoring loudly last night. 
but I had to use the potty. I deliberately made more noise to get the snoring to stop. Margaret, which is better, the snoring or the gasping for air? And the snoring's better because it stops when I make noise without waking the person in question. What I didn't write to Margaret that what I'll confess to you, dear Kitty, is that I've been dreaming of Peter a great deal. The night before last, I dreamed I was skating right here in our living room with that little boy from the Apollo High Skating Rink. He was with his sister, the girl with the spindly legs who always wore the same blue dress. I introduced myself, overdoing it a bit, and asked him his name. It was Peter. In my dream, I wondered just how many Peters I actually knew. Then I dreamed we were standing in Peter's room, facing each other beside the stairs. I said something to him. He gave me a kiss. We replied that he didn't love me all that much and that I shouldn't flirt. In a desperate and pleading voice, I said, I'm not flirting, Peter. When I woke up, I was glad Peter hasn't said it after all. Last night, I dreamed we were kissing each other, but Peter's cheeks were very disappointing. They weren't as soft as they looked. They were more like father's cheeks, the cheeks of a man who already shaves. Friday, March 10th, 1944. My dearest Kitty, the proverb misfortunes never come singly definitely applies today. Peter just got through saying it. Let me tell you all the awful things that have happened and that are still hanging over our heads. First, me this sick. As a result of Hank and Ahir wedding yesterday, she caught cold in the West Cape, where the service was held. Second, Mr. Clayman hasn't returned to work since the last time his stomach started bleeding, so Bab's been left to hold down the fort alone. Third, the police have arrested a man. It's terrible not only for him, but for us as well, since he's been supplying us with potatoes, butter and jam. Mr. M, as I'll call him, has five children under the age of 13 and another on the way. Last night we had another little scare. We were in the middle of dinner when suddenly someone knocked on the wall next door. For the rest of the evening, we were nervous and gloomy. Lately, I haven't been at all in the mood to write down what's been going on here. I've been more wrapped up in myself. Don't get me wrong, I'm terribly upset about what's happened to poor, good-hearted Mr. M, but there's not much room for him in my diary. Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, I was in Peter's room from 4.30 to 5.15. We worked on our French and chatted about one thing and another. I really look forward to that hour or so in the afternoon. But best of all is that I think Peter's just as pleased to see me. Yours and Frank. Saturday, March 11, 1944. Dearest Kitty, I haven't been able to sit still lately. I wander upstairs and down and then back again. I like talking to Peter but I'm always afraid of being a nuisance. He's told me a bit about the past, about his parents and about himself, but it's not enough. In every five minutes, I wonder why I find myself longing for more. He used to think I was a real pain in the neck, and the feeling was mutual. I've changed my mind, and how do I know he's changed his? I think he has, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have to become the best of friends. Although as far as I'm concerned, it would make our time here more bearable, but I won't let this drive me crazy. I spend enough time thinking about him and don't have to get you all worked up as well, simply because I'm so miserable. Sunday, March 12, 1944. Dearest Kitty, things are getting crazier here as the days go by. Peter hasn't looked at me since yesterday. He's been acting as if he's mad at me. I'm doing my best not to chase after him and to talk to him as little as possible. But it's not easy. What's going on? What makes him keep me at arm's length one minute and rush back to my side next? Perhaps I'm imagining that it's worse than it really is. Perhaps he's just moody like me, 
and tomorrow everything will be all right again. I have the hardest time trying to maintain a normal facade when I'm feeling so wretched and sad. I have to talk, help around the house, sit with the others, and above all, act cheerful. Most of all, I miss the outdoors and having a place where I can be alone for as long as I want. I think I'm getting everything all mixed up, Kitty, but then, I'm in a state of utter confusion. On the one hand, I'm half crazy with desire for him, can hardly be in the same room without looking at him, and on the other hand, I wonder why he should matter to me so much and why I can't be calm again. Day and night, during every waking hour, I do nothing but ask myself, have you given him enough chance to be alone? Have you been spending too much time upstairs? Do you talk too much about serious subjects he's not yet ready to talk about? Maybe he doesn't even like you. Has it all been your imagination? But then why has he told you so much about himself? Is he sorry he did? And a whole lot more. Yesterday afternoon, I was so worn out by the sad news from the outside that I lay down on my divan for a nap. All I wanted was to sleep and not have to think. I slept until four, but then I had to go next door. It wasn't easy, answering all mother's questions and inventing an excuse to explain my nap to father. I pleaded the headache, which wasn't a lie, since I did have one, on the inside. Ordinary people, ordinary girls, teenagers like myself, would think I'm a little nuts with all my self-pity, but that's just it. I pour my heart out to you, and the rest of the time I'm as impudent, cheerful, and self-confident as possible to avoid questions and keep from getting on my own nerves. Margaret is very kind and would like me to confide in her, but I can't tell her everything. She takes me too seriously, far too seriously, and spends a lot of time thinking about her loony sister, looking at me closely whenever I open my mouth and wondering, is she acting or does she really mean it? It's because we're always together. I don't want a person I confide in to be around me all the time. When will I untangle my jumbled thoughts? When will I find inner peace again? Yours, F. Despondent. Despondent. Adjective. In those spirits from loss of hope or courage. Rambunctious. Rambunctious. Adjective. Uncontrollably exuberant. Boisterous.